Hello and welcome to Obsession, where we get horribly obsessed, highly obsessed, <laughs> hilariously obsessed with things that other people might find odd. Nothing is too obscure, too creepy, or too weird for us to research obsessively. I'm Heidi. And I'm Rebecca. Join us in being obsessed. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. <laughs> hello, Becky. Hello, Heidi. So, we are in season two. I know. Yay! Did we ever think that we would... <laughs> we would finish one episode no. let alone get to the second season <laughs> no and you know what we have to actually really truly give us a pat on the back because we're talking about two gemini's here actually continuing on with the project which is pretty phenomenal i think and look as as gemini's go we are very flighty yes easily easily <laughs> distracted we're artistic gemini's, gemini's. <laughs> even what's artistic gemini's oh my god oh yeah i mean you know, us completing anything is yeah. is is amazing. So, um, I I think we're pretty wonderful for getting this far, and yes. and thank you guys for listening to us because yeah. we never actually thought that people would want to listen to us. We were kind <laughs> of we were kind of doing this sort of for ourselves, and we thought, yeah. oh, you know, if other people want to listen, and yeah, we we didn't expect you know, people to be so lovely about it. I know. I'm, I'm always surprised when people listen to it and comment about it because I think, oh, oh, thanks for listening to me and Heidi have one of our rambling conversations because, as you said, we did actually start it for ourselves as a way of, you know, just life can take over, as everybody knows, and Heidi and I can tend to neglect each other and sort of drift off into our own daddy lives. So it's been really nice to um, concentrate on something a little bit more literary or interesting and share that experience and to share it with others is really special. Thank you. It is. And sharing it with you lovely people out there is incredibly special. So yeah. thank you. So let's hope they hang on through season two. Let's hope that we keep focused through season two. Yes, I know, I know. And it's been such a difficult time, difficult mm. last year. This year is looking like it's going to be a challenging year for most of the world. So let's hold on. Yes. Yeah. Huh. So let's get on with this week's topic which is mm. something that I have been obsessive about since I was very young. I've been obsessive about the topic but not about the person we're discussing tonight. Aha uh -huh. yes well same with me obsessive about the topic didn't really know about the person. No. No. So do you know what I'll start off with an older memory. Mm -hmm. So when I was a teenager I remember that most of the other girls would cover their binders with pictures of, of fashion models that they'd cut out from magazines. So this was the 90s. It was the era of the supermodel. <laughs> now, that's, that's a challenging time to be a teenage girl yeah. in the era of the supermodel. <laughs> and yeah. it, 
it seemed like being a model was the ultimate thing. Yes. Now, I was a nerd, as you can probably guess. <laughs> I like spending a lot of time in the library. Look, you can, you can guess that. Yeah. Um, and look, I loved rebelling against what was popular and mainstream. And I was kind of obnoxious about it. I was, a, you know how now there's that sort of meme of I'm not like other girls I was probably I was probably a bit like that yeah so I like to think that I was too cultured and intellectual (laughs) to be obsessed with supermodels and I decided that my aesthetic would be Victorian revival so you know I did get beaten up quite a bit um (laughs) Mostly inspired by the Pre-Raphaelites. So everything I owned was covered in art postcards, usually of Rossetti, Waterhouse or Malay. I thought that I was being really different and really, you know, edgy. (laughs) (laughs) Edgy. You know, I thought I was being really different from all of my peers. But do you know what? In reality, I was just doing the same thing the other girls were doing I was just taking my inspiration from a different era yeah but to be fair it wasn't super thin images of Kate what's her name Kate Moss Moss, Moss. Kate Moss yeah yeah so there, there was a bit more I don't know um attempt to be uh deep and literal about <laughs> it I guess yeah so for me, I never admired models, which was a little bit tricky because both of my best friends at the time were both models. And so, and I was quite beautiful at that age, but because I had two. You friends, are still beautiful, Becky. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No, well, I was actually really um, beautiful at that time, not just, you know, because you're my friend saying I'm beautiful. <laughs> um, and, but because both my friends were models, I just always felt like, you know, I was pretty much worthless and that was the 90s for me but so my teenage years weren't about admiring models my teenage years were about writing angst-ridden deep political songs about nuclear annihilation so you know what I used to write poetry about nuclear (laughs) annihilation (laughs) I didn't think I'd make it to 21 I I was sure the world was gonna end before so yeah look I look I was a bit more pretentious I thought that I would die of some kind of um, Bronte sister type. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was like, yeah, I'm going to be on the couch writing my magnum opus (laughs) and then I'll cough. (coughs) I have to tell you where my – what is it about teenagers and this stuff? When my mum was about – 15 just before she had me she um was chronically ill with um pneumonia and and she sort of laid there writing a poem about how the life her life breath was drifting from her body and stuff like that yeah and I actually did find some of my um teenage um uh poetry slash songs recently and oh my god they were so pretentious so something about being a teenager hey you know yeah Look, we were doing stuff. It's it's all good. It's all good. All growth, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I was obsessed with the paintings of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. They were dreamy, colourful, had languid women in long flowing dresses. Also, I like to think that they looked a bit like me. You know, they did. 
to be fair on that you were actually spot on oh look I used to tell myself that if I'd lived in the Victorian era I would have fit the ideal of the time yes and strangely enough I wasn't that interested in who these women were and it turns out that the stories behind the models are more interesting than the paintings themselves and in many ways more interesting than the men who painted them. Oh, for sure. And as I just mentioned, as I, ha- I have to confess that until we started Obsession as a podcast, you know, last year, yeah. I didn't actually ever really look that deeply into the more of the story of the women behind the great artists, for which I feel quite ashamed. So obviously this is now a bit of my, you know, obsession and I'm a bit ashamed and embarrassed to admit that it's taken me to such a late age to do that. But I am really enjoying amending that and learning more about these women who posed for such famous artists. Well, today we're going to focus on one of those models. Yes. um, Lizzie Siddle. And we're not just going to look at her. We're going to also uh, talk a bit about the role of of women as artistic muse. Mm. So let's say we define a muse, as in a person, a person who um, inspires an artist, but but, um, in the way that we're looking at it, they're not just a person who inspires an artist, their lives are dedicated Mm. to inspiring the artist. Mm. So... Let me pose a question. If you had a choice, would you be the artist or the muse? No contest. I want to be the artist, never, ever the muse. Mm. As a muse, you have no agency um, and these women, so many of these women are portrayed as what men, how they wish to portray them or how they imagine them to be rather than what they actually truly were. So they're more like a projection. Correct. All right. And I think you and I both know that being um, the projection of someone else's imagination is never kind of a good thing, never ends well. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And as you can probably guess, I would also prefer to be Mm. the artist, which I like to think that I am anyway. You are anyway, yeah. Oh, thank you. So let's start with the story of Super Muse. Elizabeth Eleanor Siddle, who was born in 1829 to a working-class London family and the third of eight children. Her father had a cutlery business and while not living in poverty, the family had to work hard to survive and the children were expected to contribute financially as soon as they could. It's thought that the Siddle children probably didn't go to school, but they were all literate and obviously had yeah. some form of homeschooling in early childhood. Yeah, I, I was actually really curious about that because it was not common in 1830s England for working class women to read and write. Um, if you look back through, you know, just all the marriage records, sort of thing mm. like that, most women were signing with an X and that kind of stuff. So I was really curious about that. I want to ask who taught her. Uh, look, I'm... There's no information about that, but her dad did have some pretension to being fallen nobility or something like oh, that. Oh, really? So, so, you know, he was probably 
wanting his children to be a bit educated. I think he had a bit of pride in that direction. Oh, good on if that was the case. Yeah. So, look, legend has it that Lizzie was in the kitchen unwrapping a pat of butter that had been wrapped in a piece of newspaper that happened to have a poem of Tennyson's printed on it. Discovering the existence of poetry changed young Lizzie's life. She then spent all of her free time jotting down poetry and drawing. Her health was always fragile and she grew to be somewhat odd looking. In fact, she was the exact opposite of everything that was considered attractive in Victorian England. Mm. Back then, the ideal beauty for, for a woman was short, plump and soft with delicate features and a rosebud mouth. Lizzie, by contrast, was very tall, very thin and had extremely bright red hair. <laughs> now, anyone who grew up reading or watching out of Green Gables knows that red hair back in those days was a bit of a curse. Mm. It wasn't just unfashionable to be a redhead. There were all sorts of associations of, of immorality that came with the colouring. Yes, wanton women. Yeah, so while the historical links to witchcraft didn't mean so much in the Victorian era, red-headed women still carried a stigma and an association with promiscuity. So in spite of being everything that Victorian society considered physically undesirable in a woman, Lizzie was so striking that people often felt themselves compelled to stare at her. And, you know, this reminds me, I once had a work colleague who'd previously worked for a modelling agency and she used to go through portfolios and decide which ones her manager should, should see as, you know, potential um, models for the agency. Yeah. And she said that if a girl walked into the office and she was just immediately recognisable as extremely pretty, then her photos would be really average and just not interesting enough. But if a girl walked in and she was kind of weird looking, her photos would be stunning. Mm. And she said that most um, really gorgeous models that, you know, you see um, in magazines, they're actually... Um, yeah, like a little bit weird to the point of almost ugly in, in real life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I was just reminded of that. Yeah. Yeah. So as well as being an unconventional beauty, Lizzie also had very in different interests from most working class girls of her time. Still obsessed with poetry and art, Lizzie yearned to be amongst artists and intellectuals. And more than anything, she wanted to learn how to draw properly. Now, this would be difficult. Most of the eminent art schools in England did not admit women, and the few that did allow some female students barred them from life drawing classes and gave them an overall inferior education to their male counterparts. Most of the women who entered art college grounds were models, not students. 
that's not exactly very shocking really is it now <laughs> no it's not and um <laughs> i was just reminded of another little story mm-hmm. um one of my um one of my art teachers um actually said that now i haven't been able to find any information on this but she said that if you look at victorian era photos um of of art classes like in royal academies and you know of course the students are all men she said look for any reflective surfaces in the photos like you know if there's a silver plate or or something with a reflective surface because sometimes they did sneak girls into these classes and they weren't allowed to be in the photo because no one was allowed to know that they're in the class, but they would stand off, off camera and they would have like their face reflected in a reflective surface. Oh, this is going to be my new obsession now. Trying I know. To... <laughs> and look, and look, I've been trying to find these photos. If you can find any, please send them to me. Yeah. Yeah. That just, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. These, yes. It's incredible, isn't it? So now there are two contrasting stories about how Lizzie finally got into the world of the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. The first is that she was working in a millinery shop when an artist named Walter Deverell saw her and was so captivated by her unworldly looks that he decided to make her his model. The second and much better story says that Lizzie took herself off to show her drawings to Walter Deverell's father, who was then the head of the Government School of Design. Yeah, I would be fascinated to know more about the source of these two stories Mm. and whether the second is the revisionist version, because to me, the first, that she was magically discovered, sounds very romantic, a bit too romantic, and is almost part of removing that artistic drive to her, reducing her to just, you know, her physical aesthetic value mm. the second that she herself sought advancements I think is actually more likely what do you think well I mean the first story is the one that you see the most of in uh, biographies but apparently the second story came from an obituary that was found kind of fairly well not recently recently but um <laughs> I don't suppose you know who wrote the obituary, do you? No, I don't. Ah. Hmm. Love to know more. We'll, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. yeah. And we will. We will, we will and obsess we will. over that. <laughs> <laughs> so Deverell Senior was more interested in Lizzie's potential as a model than as an artist. Surprise, surprise. Hmm. Which is how she ended up meeting and posing for his son. So Deverell was a friend of the artists of the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood and Deverell told them that his new model was stupendously beautiful, magnificently tall, with a lovely figure and a face of the most delicate and finished modelling. It's funny how we all see beauty differently, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so to a lot of people she was just this weird-looking girl, but to these artists she was a stunner. Mm, mm. and she and she was a stunner oh she was but I think I don't know have you read much of her poetry I have read enough of her poetry 
to know that like most Victorian poetry, it's not really my thing. Not correct. Same. (laughs) Same. But I do think in a very naive way, she did show a little potential as an artist. Yes. Yes. Mm. Mm. I would have liked to have seen where she could have got. It was very, very teenage-like, actually, that angsty Victorian, like we were talking about. It's it's the Victorian version of um, nuclear annihilation poetry. And she she was very young. She was. She was. She was young. Yeah, she was. So I'd have liked to have seen anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So, look, we might just quickly explain who the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood were, just for (laughs) anybody who, who doesn't know. So they were basically an artistic movement founded in 1848 in England and they were mostly made up of painters but they did include a couple of poets. Um, The original members included artists like William Holman Hunt, John Everett Millay, Dante Gabriel Rossetti amongst others. It was a really loose group. Um, There wasn't any kind of tight membership. You know, people could be loosely associated. And as their name suggests, they were not fans of Renaissance painter Raphael. And they believed that his techniques had set a bad example for all the painters that came after him. They were heavily inspired by the Romantic movement and believed that the spiritual powers of nature and believed in the spiritual powers of nature. They rejected the trend of painting scenes of everyday life and instead took inspiration from religion, mythology and literature, focusing heavily on the Middle Ages. So the member of the Brotherhood who would ultimately have the most influence on Liz- on Lizzie's life was Rossetti. But it was John Everett Millay who created probably the most famous image of her, namely his painting of Ophelia. Mm. So this much-loved painting of the Shakespearean heroine lying in a river about to sink to her death, (laughs) flowers strewn around her, it's such a gorgeous painting. It was what made Lizzie famous but it also foreshadowed and in some ways even contributed to Uh her own death some years later. So Lizzie had to lie in a bathtub full of water, wearing only the loose silver gown we see in the painting. And this was in the middle of winter. Lamps were placed underneath the tub to help keep the water warm only they went out during the sitting and Millet was too absorbed in his work to notice and Lizzie was too shy to speak up. Yeah, and in too much need of the money too. Yeah. 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 So the amount she was being paid for this modelling session was absolutely astronomical for a shop girl. Um, I've heard estimates that it was literally like, you know, a year's income. I don't know if it was that much, but it would have been a, a big boost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so listen, by the way, the water for this modeling session actually came from the Thames River. Oh, yes, we reckon ooh now that's nothing because at that time it was basically an open sewer filled with human excrement as well as all kinds of waste from industry, etc. So, have you heard of the Great Stink? 
Yes. In London, yep. Yes. This this basically was a time in London where it was unbearably overwhelmed by the fumes of the Thames. This gross bath modelling session was only a few years before that. So it's, it would have been pretty disgusting water. Oh, poor Lizzie. Poor Lizzie. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, look, she escaped freezing to death. But she did become incredibly ill shortly afterwards. Her father demanded that Millet pay their medical bills, which he did. And although Lizzie survived, her already fragile health never fully recovered. No, no, it didn't. She was also given laudanum, an analgesic containing opium. And this was the start of her drug addiction. Yeah. At this stage, Lizzie was fully immersed in the life of the pre-Raphaelites and in particular the life of Dante Gabriel Rossetti, who had become her lover and her mentor. Lizzie was his muse and modelled exclusively for him. Much to her delight, Lizzie's artistic ambitions were also being recognised. Rossetti himself was tutoring her in drawing and painting and even allowed her to show some of her pieces in the Brotherhood's exhibitions, which is, you know, a little better than some of the um, stories we hear. Yeah, definitely. The art critic John Ruskin believed in her talent so much that he gave her a yearly allowance of £150 so that she could have the independence to focus on her studies. As amazing as this sounds, it did mean, though, that Ruskin had some control over her life and work. Hmm. Yeah, of course. Her relationship with Rossetti was troubled from the start. He was moody constantly unfaithful and frequently selfish. He might have been willing to teach her how to paint, but ultimately his own work would come first and her main and primary use to him was that of a muse and a model. Lizzie's art was either mocked by other artists or overlooked. Unlike the male painters in her circle, Lizzie had not had the years of formal training and it showed. Her insecurities about her place in Rossetti's life can be seen in her poem, I Care Not for My Lady's Soul. Low sit I down at my lady's feet, gazing through her wild eyes, smiling to think how my love will fleet when their star-like beauty dies. She had reason to be insecure. Even after 10 years together, Rossetti had not set a wedding date and he was easily distracted by the younger models that were brought into his circle. Realising that a career as an artist was near impossible and that her role as a muse was likely to be usurped at any point, Lizzie relied heavily on laudanum to get her through the day. The sale of one of her paintings to a well-known art collector from the US gave Lizzie the confidence she needed to break free from the controlling men in her life. She told Ruskin to cancel her annuity, yes, and she went to Derbyshire for a holiday with one of her sisters. She didn't return to London, instead moving to Sheffield to live in a lodging house and study at the local art school. Now, Not much is known of her life there until 1860 when she became terribly ill. On hearing that she was close to death, 
Rossetti promptly arranged for the much longed for marriage license and arrived at her door. Oh, that would be the way, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Look, I'm going to spend 10 years kind of, kind of not engaged. Yeah. Oh, I know. Not, not really into getting. Oh, what? What? You might be dying. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. See, see, we're making fun of teenagers here, but really Rossetti was quite the teenager his entire life. With his... Look, you know, you've got that thing of the gifted male and the arrested developer. <laughs> you know? Because, uh, look, if, if you read any biography of his, his brilliant sister, Christina Rossetti, Mm. Um, the Rossetti family did dote on young Dante Gabriel quite yep. a bit. Yeah, you know he he was he was treasured. Yep. So you know a, a bit a bit of a sense of entitlement there. Yeah, I think <laughs> I think so. So so they did get married, and Lizzie did recover somewhat, and she even fell pregnant. It looked like they might finally reach reach a stage of contentment. However, in 1861, Lizzie gave birth to a stillborn daughter and her subsequent depression worsened her reliance on laudanum. Mm. Once a friend walked into the heartbreaking scene of Lizzie rocking an empty cradle and asking her not to wake the baby. Oh, that kills me. That's so sad. Yeah. Early the following year, Rossetti came home from teaching a night class at the Working Men's College and found Lizzie comatose, an empty bottle of laudanum by the bed. Doctors were unable to revive Lizzie and she died during the early hours of the next morning. When she was in her coffin, Rossetti made the grandiose and very Victorian gesture of placing the only manuscript of his unpublished poetry next to Lizzie's cheek. I... <laughs> so it could be buried with her in an act of extreme artistic sacrifice. He even made her death about him. Everything was about him. <laughs> Everything was about him. She didn't exist without oh, him. Sorry. Yeah. I broke your plug. So Sorry. So, Becky, I think we know what's coming next. Uh, no, this is a familiar theme for us, isn't it, Heidi? I know. I know. Um, okay. Yeah. Here we Men go. Men who do not leave women's corpses alone. <laughs> so... So, as you probably guessed, seven years later, he decides he wants the manuscript back. Of course he did. <laughs> so, he was able to have the coffin legally exhumed, but he wasn't present. No, he was, he was staying far away. So, his agent, Charles Howell, was there. And it seems that Howell had a bit of a literary flair himself because he claimed that Lizzie's corpse was quite perfect. Oh, for God. Okay, this is after seven years <laughs> of, after her death. Okay. Yeah. So her corpse was perfect and it showed no signs of decay. And now this story evolved 
to the coffin being filled with her amazing hair, oh, for... which had kept it had kept growing years after her death. It's like a fairy tale. Of course baby. it is. Of course it is. Oh, oh I, my look, God! Of course, Still, of course, of course, this wasn't true, and the manuscript itself was evidence yes. of that. So, so you know, corpses leak. Corpses liquidize. Mm-hmm. And the manuscript was soaked as well as being full of wormholes. Oh, God. So (laughs) Rossetti was presented with a pile of decaying papers that stank of disinfectant. I mean, I'm I'm glad they disinfected it. I mean, you know. So he would have been sitting at his desk transcribing from this course corpse juice manuscript that stank to high heaven of disinfectant i mean can you imagine how quickly he would have been transcribing like (coughs) imagine his thought process through all this i know and i think he did have a bit of a whinge that the poem that he most wanted had like heaps and heaps of wormholes oh really yeah poor baby oh poor poor Look, okay, so I sometimes feel guilty because I feel like occasionally our podcast can be a little bit on the feminine side and a little bit harsh on men. Yes. I I mean, we we do have reasons to be when we research these stories because, you know, digging up a corpse to get your palms back is a bit bad. So to be fair, he did apparently regret it. And he didn't want to yeah. do it. He was quite ill and really desperate for money when he organised for this, which I suppose is something. Look, it is a step up from the other corpse rating <laughs> that we've spoken about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we can be a bit generous here. Okay. Yeah. Well, I had to really so, search for that. <laughs> so, look, that's the story of Lizzie Siddle. Yeah. And there have been exhibitions of her work. Not that much of it exists anymore. Um, You know, there have been exhibitions um, where people have, you know, seen uh, somebody who should be appreciated as an artist. And I agree. I think even though, uh, you know, she hadn't learnt as much technical skill as as the men in the circle... I think she had a lot of raw talent and I think had she been born in a different era, I think she could have done something extremely impressive. And that's the thing when we look at women of the era, uh, did, did Rossetti have as much raw talent as she had or was just because he had literally had an entire life cosseted, um, nurtured and taught that he was such a good artist? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, how how would we not? Yeah, we don't. We, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... That may be the story of one woman who was cast as an artistic muse with tragic results. But as you and I both know, there are countless others. So we look at most of Picasso's mistresses and there is, of course, Rodin's model and muse, Camille Claudel, who definitely deserves her own episode at some point, Heidi. Agreed. Absolutely. Fascinating. Gala Dali. Zelda Fitzgerald, and so, so, so many more, both in the art world, literature, everywhere. Everything. Everything. 
Politics. Politics, yes. Mm. This could be endless. We could just actually do an entire podcast on women who were creatively screwed by their partners throughout <laughs> women history. Women in the background. There'd yeah. be a lot of episodes of that one. would be more than two seasons worth, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, so... Angelica Frey states in her article, The Problem with the Muse in Art History. While we loosely use the word muse to describe an inspiration or influence behind an artwork, we are guilty of either idealising a woman as a muse or downgrading an accomplished female artist to one. This still happens today and has taken place for centuries. Yeah, it certainly has. And if you think of the Italian poet Dante and Beatrice, for example, you know, that's kind of the the ultimate example of artist and muse. And the muses seem to work best if they die young. So then they're this eternal young woman who's frozen in time. Yes, I had never considered that. You are so right. And you know what, Um, just as as an aside here, I was reading uh, one of the articles that we we mention here. They brought up um, the idea of or the trope of the manic pixie dream girl. Have you heard of this? Okay, it's a trope mainly used in cinema um, of a female character um, the probably the most famous one is the Audrey Hepburn character Holly Golightly yeah. in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So you know you have a kind of moody, cranky sort of man who's very, <laughs> who's you know depressed. He hasn't really got much going for him, and then this beautiful sprite <laughs> of a woman who's incredibly quirky and different uh-uh. and unique, pops into his life and and just, you know, throws fairy dust yeah. on him. And her life is about making this man happy. Yeah. And, or, you know, not her life, but like her focus in the, in the story is making him happy, even though she could probably be doing a million other amazing things. things. And, and often in these movies that, that feature this trope of Manic Pixie Dream Girl, <laughs> um, she, she often dies young. Ah. I'm not, not, in, not in Breakfast at Tiffany's, but, you know, there are quite a few other examples where, you know, she dies young or ah, something yeah. happens. But if you go back to Breakfast and Tiffany's, he loses her. He's reflecting back. Yeah. So he so he has her. mentally yeah. killed her young. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. So what, what was that yeah. called again? Ment- what was it? Pixie. Manic pixie dream. That girl. is amazing. I love this. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. And there's there's quite a lot. Um, there's quite a lot online about about this trope and. And, you know, how it started. And, and do you know what? I, I kind of do see it in relation to this, this idea of the muse in, mm-hmm. in a lot of yeah. ways. Yeah. So, look, the very idea of the muse dates back as far as ancient Greece, with the nine muses being the daughters of Zeus and Memesina, the goddess of memory. 
ancient writers would preface their work with a request to the muses to assist them in their storytelling. So it seems that ethereal women have always floated around in some form, willing to dedicate themselves to the creative expressions of men. <laughs> the question is then, can a muse be male? Yeah. Claire Pollard ponders this question in her essay, The Female Poet and the Male Muse. Pollard comes to the conclusion that there are definitely male muses for gay men, which completely makes sense and is completely reasonable. Mm -hmm. But there is a dearth of male muses for, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming she's talking about heterosexual female artists. And she writes... Through artist, look through artistic history and it would seem simply that women do not have male muses. There are a few groundbreaking women who wrote of male beauty, Afro Ben, Edna St. Vincent Millay, for example, but their love objects are often transparent and interchangeable. There is no male equivalent of Petrarch's Laura in the annals of literary history. Huh. That kind of brings home how heteronormative the whole thing is, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. What about women seeing other women as muses? That has to be a thing. I mean, I know for me, my own creativity is definitely influenced by the female experience, but as opposed to like the appearance of a woman or my perception of them, does that count as women being muses for women or is it actually more based on the appearance? Look, you know, I'm not sure, really. Um, look, going back to ancient Greece again, we've got Sappho, who's thought to have written most of her love poetry for women. So, you know, there were, there were probably some, some women who were inspiration there, of course. Mm. But if we see a muse as someone who isn't just a source of inspiration, if we see a muse as someone whose life is dedicated to being a blank canvas yeah. for an artist, there really aren't that many, many examples of women expecting that from other no. women. Even, you know, even in relationships, there, there doesn't seem to be that many examples. It does seem to be, you know, uh, it does seem to be a more heterosexual thing, doesn't yeah, it? Does. Um, so, look, in general, women have come to see themselves as their own muses. Yes. That's great until you realise that you're the only one who's going to actually, you know, go and make you a sandwich. <laughs> Yeah, I know. <laughs> and, you know, it is, it is kind of hard to explore yes, yourself, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Heidi, I don't know if you realise this, but inadvertently our little podcast has taken on a whole swathe of women as our own users. They, mm. Yeah, they inspire me to want to research and obsess over them, but not as blank canvases for what I want them to be. Well, I hope not anyway. Um, but this is sometimes why I get paralysed when I try to write episodes because I feel guilty for telling their story to them, you know, portraying them with my own romanticism and my own perception of what uh, they mean to history. And you know, do you know what I mean? I, ta I take away yeah, myself. I do. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do. And, you know, I think, I think we are 
both kind of careful in that way. You try to be anyway. We try to be. We do try to be. But, you know, I was just thinking when, when we were talking about um, women with female muses. Um, okay. Now, you know that one of my lifelong obsessions, one of my lifelong musical obsessions is Tori Amos. Oh, really? Yes, no. I am one of really? Those, oh, I am one wow. of those Tori Amos fans. Wow, that shocked me, know. Heidi. You didn't know. I don't relate, you know, it's it's not like I'm relating every situation that ever happens to one of us. <laughs> and to your friends' lives. So no, give a bit no. of I'm gonna give a bit of background to our relationship here, Mike. <laughs> so if I express anything that's tricky, difficult, whatever, and by the way, I appreciate this. Anything yeah. in my life, there is a Tori Amos song that Heidi will pull out that actually is healing and actually is relevant. <laughs> it's like she's going to come up with a Tory, but yeah, she does. And you know what? It's always yeah. exactly spot on. Yeah, hail, hail Tory, Queen of the Fairies. Oh, look, Tory is the queen. She is, she is definitely Queen of the Fairies. And um, she speaks constantly about her muses in interviews. Um, and it's something she's always been very open about, but she talks about them yeah. um, in a way that kind of evokes the sort of ancient Grecian um, spiritual muses. And in interviews, she often talks about them as presences, as, as a presence that she sees, as in, you know, they'll be like people who walk into the room and, oh. and tell her things. And it's some, you know, throughout her entire career, so many interviews are saying this same thing, this same relationship to the muses, as though they are people that talk to her. And she'll, she says, you know, she'll be at the sink washing up and, and one of them will, will come into the kitchen and talk to her and she'll say, oh, not now. And I'll say, <laughs> yes, now. Sorry. Yeah. But, but, uh, and and so and and she tends to describe them um, as feminine, and she also calls her songs song girls. And when she talks about a song, she always refers to them as she. Right. Like she doesn't say this song. She'll say, "Well, she was written." Right. Wow. Yes. See, okay, so there, there's a very clear, neat, tidy, wonderful example of yeah. a female having muses which are female, but but it's very different from. It's very. It's completely it's, different. It's a spiritual. It's a spiritual level, and she always talks herself talks about herself as being in their service. That's what I was about to say. In their service. And yes. To me, that's what. Now, so if you would ask me as a female what is a muse, it is someone mm. who inspires me to to draw from what wisdom they have to give me or from what beauty they have to give me. And I don't mean aesthetic yeah. beauty, by the way, right? Yeah. From what experiences they have to give me. It's not what I want to put on them or what I want to take from them. Does that make sense to you? Mm. That's how absolutely. I would describe muse. Yes, absolutely. And... That is kind of that difference, isn't it? The the idea of, you know, is the muse in the service of you or are you in the service, service of, the, of muse. the muse? Thank you. Yes. Yes. And that's how I would that's how I would view it. And that's how I think 
if ever I were to state that anything was a, anyone was a muse to me, that's mm. how I would express it, I think. But see, and, and now here's the thing. So we go back to our question, do women have muses? Yes, we do. We just have a different definition of what muse means. Yes. Mm. Yes, we do. Well, this is very interesting. Thank you, Tori. Thank you, Tori. Again, again, Tori comes out at the right moment. Because actually, do you know what, Heidi? I was going to tell everyone. We actually didn't know how to end this episode. And we've been sort of pondering different ways of, um, you know, finishing off. As I said to you before, Heidi will always bring up a Tori that ends it, ends things well or concludes things or solves things. It's happened again. Tori to the rescue. Yep. Yep. You know, she is. Swept in to save me so many times, yeah. which which is what a great artist does. And talking about art, um, we will put some of Lizzie Siddle's own artwork up on our website, yes. up on our Obsession Facebook page, which has not been blocked, even though a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really a lot of pages that we have been blocked in Australia, but we haven't been blocked. <laughs> So, um, yeah, so hop on to our Facebook page. Um, and also, if you can, if you could um, give our podcast maybe a nice rating, maybe some stars, that would be wonderful. That would be really, really uh, morale boosting for us. Yes. Yes. much for joining us in our first episode of season two. two so lots of love to you please keep safe we're living in very dangerous times but do everything you can to stay alive spiritually emotionally physically and good luck until we see you next see you guys bye <laughs>